Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we are talking with Robbie Davis Floyd, and we're going to talk about the American culture of childbirth. And Robbie has some really interesting ideas about it. And I was just fascinated years ago. I saw her on Business of Being Born. I've heard her in other podcasts. I've been chasing her down to organize this podcast. So I'm really excited to speak with her, and I'm sure you guys will enjoy listening. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Robbie Davis Floyd, PhD, Senior Research Fellow of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin, and Fellow of the Society for Applied Anthropology, is a world-renowned medical anthropologist, international speaker, and researcher in transformational models in childbirth, midwifery, and obstetrics. She's the author of over 80 articles and many, many books, including Birth as an American Rite of Passage and Power of Ritual. Robbie serves as editor for the International Mother-Baby Childbirth Initiative and senior advisor to the Council of Anthropology and Reproduction. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much for organizing your schedule to speak with me. Thank you so much. Hi, it's my pleasure. So I'd love to hear what brought you to this work. Um, well, having a baby, it's the case <laughs> with many female anthropologists, especially that um, we study things that are of intimate personal interest to us. For example, Raina Rapp, who's our probably most famous medical anthropologist, um, did an amazing study of amniocentesis. And what sparked her to do that was that she had an amniocentesis and her baby was diagnosed with Downs and she ended up deciding to abort she wrote a very personal chapter about that in a book called Test Two Babies and how that experience of abortion, even though she's a feminist, she, she felt that the experience did essentialize her to her body. You know, feminists are always criticizing natural childbirth advocates for essentializing us to our bodies. Um, Raina felt after the abortion, she, as long as her breasts were still pendulous with milk, as long as she, her belly still ached for the baby that had been there, um, as long as her body still felt pregnant, she grieved um, much more deeply and much for a much longer time than her husband did. And it made her realize that biology, in fact, is important and does play a great role in our emotions and our um, ability to cope with things. And and she dealt with her grief by becoming intellectually interested in amniocentesis and interviewing hundreds of couples about their is sitting in on hundreds of interviews with amniocentesis um, um, under people who underwent amniocentesis. She even went into the labs and watched them do the genetic testing. She talked to women who, even if they got a diagnosis of Downs or some other genetic defect, they chose to keep their babies anyway. And she did all of that out of a very personal interest in the subject. So when I was um, pregnant with my first child, Peyton, the natural childbirth movement was, you know, <clears throat> well underway. I was given this book called Common Sense Childbirth by Lester Hazel, that was one of the very early natural childbirth um, sort of readers. And I read it and I loved it. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's how I want to have this baby. And I ended up with this very unnecessary cesarean in the hospital. A lot of women still today think that you can read what's on the Internet, you can read books, you prepare yourself intellectually. Then you find yourself in the hospital with the doctor saying, 
I'm sorry, you're not progressing. You're still only at four centimeters. We really need to speed this labor up with Pitocin. And then you get <clears throat> these harder, stronger contractions. And then you start asking for the pain relief that you swore you weren't going to ask for. And, and, um, and then there's failure to progress and the baby goes into distress and they do a cesarean <clears throat> and you thank them for saving your life and your baby's life when in fact it was the interventions that caused the problem in the first place. So that happened to me during my first birth and it took me like a year to understand it. I, I was very thrilled with my, my beautiful, healthy newborn daughter, but I was very traumatized by the birth experience. It's like I went in there wanting to be earth mother and I came out like some kind of cyborg, you know? And, um, <laughs> And so um, I just uh, automatically, because I'm an anthropologist, I started asking other women about their birth experiences. That's what anthropologists do. And um, I started to get really intrigued with my, my very premature finding that women's birth experiences were so standardized and so often the same. And so I started to wonder, given the unique and individual birth experiences of every woman, why are they treated in such a standardized way in American hospitals? So my advisor, Barbara Kirshen Black Gimlet, took me out to lunch to um, talk about my dissertation topic. And I started out mentioning all the years of fieldwork I had done in Mexico studying myth ritual and shamanism. I had worked with two Mexican shamanism shamans, one traditional and one uh, very cosmopolitan. Uh, it was kind of like working with Don Juan, you know, and it was very fascinating. And um, and I thought I was going to do my dissertation on that. And, and she said, I see something else in your eyes. And I said, well, lately I've gotten interested in women's birth experiences. And I'm, I'm just starting to wonder why they're so standardized, given that for each woman they're so unique and important. Why are they treated this way in the hospital? And she just looked at me and she made a dismissive downward wave of her left hand and she said shamanism 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 everybody and their dog is doing shamanism and then with her right hand she lifted it up in there and she said you do women's things you do birth and i said okay <laughs> and the rest is history <laughs> and the rest is history <laughs> That's a great story. I do feel like so many, you were right, so many of the, us in the birth world, we come to it from our own experience, and that just helps us pa uh, create the path for others. So can you talk a little bit about the three paradigms of care? Yes. Um, when I wrote my first book, Birth is an American Rite of Passage, I was looking for something to call what Barbara Katzenrothman calls the medical model of care. But I wanted a term that linked it more integrally to American society's deepest core values, which when I looked around, I realized, I mean, people say, you know, core value money. Well, it's not the money. It's where the money goes and what's the money spent on. That's really indicates where the core values are. So I came up with this notion that American core values primarily consist of science, technology, patriarchy and institutions because that's where the money's going. And um, so what was the question? I'm sorry, I just got distracted. <laughs> Can you talk about the three paradigms, the three paradigms of care? Yes, right. So, um, so I began to call the medical model the technocratic model. First, I was calling it the technological model, but it was more than technology. It was an ideology. It was a type of society that was being reflected. And I happened to, um, my friend Nicole Salt was married to this guy, Peter Reynolds, and he had written a book um, <clears throat> called Stealing Fire, The Mythology of the Technocracy. And, um, and she introduced me to that word way back in the early 80s. And I, I, liked, <clears throat> I liked the word. And I came up, he had a different notion. I came up with my own definition of what the technocracy is which for me is a society organized around an ideology of progress through high technologies, the supervaluation of information that comes through technologies and the global flow of that information. That seemed to me to more, more and capitalism, of course, that seemed to me to capture more effectively the essence of the technocracy. So <clears throat> I began using that words in my writing and got a lot of po a positive response to it. So I started calling the hospital treatment of birth, not the medical model, but the technocratic model to show how deeply it reflected American technocratic core values. Um, then because for, for my first book, I interviewed 100 women about their pregnancy and birth experiences and about, I think it was six of them gave up, gave birth at home. Um, 
they had this completely different ideology, this totally different belief system, this completely different approach to birth that I started calling the holistic model because it was all about mind and body and spirit being one. It was about energy. It was Ina Mae Gaskin's spiritual midwifery. It was about how birth has this energy about it and that if you monitor the energy and change the energy in positive ways, then you don't have, if you intervene at the level of energy, you don't have to intervene at the level of, of technology. So I had these two paradigms, the technocratic and the holistic. And in between, in my first book, I talked about the natural childbirth model, which is bordering on the holistic, but not quite. Um, a lot of women, even back in the 70s, where the term natural childbirth was getting co-opted to mean awake and aware childbirth with an epidural. Like people were starting to use natural even back then to mean that your baby came out vaginally, even though you had a lot of technological interventions. So um, after my first birth book came out in 1992, um, I got invited to the American Holistic Medical Association meetings for several years in a row. That's the AHMA, not the AMA. And so here I was surrounded by all these holistic physicians. <clears throat> and so I got very interested in why they had decided to make this massive paradigm shift from technocratic traditional medical practice to holistic practice. And so I found a colleague, Gloria St. John, and together we conducted 40 interviews with holistic physicians. I did most of mine at those conferences. And, um, <clears throat> and I noticed that not all the doctors were actually holistic, even though they talked a holistic talk and spoke a holistic language. Their practice could not in any way really be called holistic, nor was it purely technocratic because they had a more relationship-centered biopsychosocial approach to birth, which was a term that was being used at the time. And I named that myself. I mean, I'm not the only one that ever used the term, but I started calling that the humanistic model. So then I had these three paradigms, the technocratic, the humanistic, and the holistic. In the technocratic model, the body is metaphorized as a machine. <clears throat> the person is an object. She's the gallbladder in room 212, or the cesarean section in room 314. Um, her, her body is treated like a dysfunctional machine that's about to break down and go wrong at any time, and birth is a dangerous me mechanistic process that's always about to break down and has to be carefully monitored with other machines, because in the technocratic model, again, it's, this, it's the high technology that matters. <clears throat> but then <clears throat> technocratic physicians, truly technocratic doctors don't take a whole lot of interest in their patients as people, but I saw that doctors who practiced humanistically might in fact use all the technologies and might still have high cesarean rates, but they were nice to their patients. They were relationship oriented. They would introduce themselves before doing a vaginal exam. I was noticing as we did all these interviews with um, these supposedly holistic physicians, again, that some of them were not practicing holistically. They didn't believe in energy or spirit, they didn't, they thought that was just way too far out there, but they had a quality relationship with their patients. They were, they were developing, cultivating an active relationship with their patients and basing a lot of their care on communication and listening. <clears throat> and they seemed to see the body not as a machine, but as an organism. And when you see the body as an organism, which it actually is, then you start looking at the natural physiology of birth and you start asking, what works for the female body to give birth physiologically? How can we facilitate that process rather than damming it up like a river that's about to flood out of control? How can we <clears throat> nurture and facilitate it? Um, and that would mean radical changes at the, in hospital policy at the time, the 1970s, the 1980s. That would mean letting women be up and moving around, not tethered to the monitor all the time. That would mean letting them eat and drink during labor because that's what organisms need to do when they're under a lot of stress and working hard. Um, just adopting a more humanistic attitude required making certain changes in the way that they practiced. Um, <clears throat> so now I had three paradigms and I wrote with Gloria St. John this book from Doctor to Healer, The Transformative Journey. And we described the paradigm shift that holistic physicians of all different kinds, not just obstetricians, made from technocratic practice to holistic practice, but we included 
a whole chapter on the humanistic paradigm because, again, some of our interviewees just did not fit in the technocratic or the holistic paradigm. They were somewhere in between. And like they might, might focus on nutrition and again on relationship, but they wouldn't they wouldn't think about energy. They didn't want to talk about anything weird or mystical or new agey like that. <clears throat> so um, I started presenting our research or the results of our interviews with these doctors at the American Holistic Medical Association meetings. And the response I got from the audience was, Oh my God, now I understand why I had to leave my department at Harvard. They said they were holistic, but they were only humanistic. And I'm truly holistic. No wonder we couldn't see eye to eye. They spoke the same language. It sounded good, but I was a completely different type of practitioner. I was truly holistic and they were not. They were humanistic. Thank you so much for pointing out the differences. So as I started to, as we wrote and talked more and more about these, I wrote this article well, okay, so um, a very significant thing happened in the year 2000 for me. I was invited to speak at the first International Congress on the Humanization of Birth in Brazil. It was the first one ever given in Latin America. We expected about 600 people, and almost 2,000 showed up. We, they, we had to move to a bigger venue. And everybody, because people came from all different countries, people came from all different professions, nurses, doctors, childbirth educators, lactation consultants, and we realized that we were witnessing literally the birth of the humanized movement, or the, birth, the movement for the humanization of birth in Latin America. That is the term they chose, parto humanizado, or, or you know, la humanización del parto, uh, in Spanish and in Portuguese. Um, so I felt that it was important for them to see that humanistic paradigm that they were fighting for in context. So I was asked to be one of five international keynote speakers for that conference. The other ones were Marsden Wagner and Ina Mae Gaskin and um, Leslie Page and um, a guy from the World Health Organization and I can't remember the, the last one. Anyway, <clears throat> um, when I gave my speech on the three paradigms, I got this huge standing ovation. And later when Leslie Page gave her, her keynote speech, she said, Robbie has now shown us what humanism truly is, how much work we have to do to get there, and how much farther there is to go if we are to go all the way to holism in our approach to birth. And so I wrote an article that was, there was a supplement to the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that, that was uh, full of papers from that conference. And the, the paper that I wrote was called The Technocratic, Humanistic, and Holistic Paradigms of Birth and Health Care. And that became this hugely influential article that went all over Latin America, got translated into Spanish and Portuguese. And everybody started to turn, defining themselves and their practices in my language. It's not like I invented the word technocratic, but I did was the first one to apply it to birth. Mm -hmm. It's not like I invented the humanistic paradigm. I kind of discovered it, but people have been talking about it for a long time. It's not like I invented the holistic paradigm, but I was the first one to put them all three together and compare them in an article and list the, the, the 12 basic tenets of each one so that you could, practitioners could clearly see if you want to make a paradigm shift, this is what you need to move away from and this is what you need to move toward. Mm -hmm. And and then you need to see as a practitioner, are you comfortable just being in humanism? If you just want to stop there, be nice to your patients, um, use a little less technology, advise them about nutrition. A lot of people are very happy there still using the machines and everything. But for some doctors, that's just not enough. And they want to go what they say all the way to holism where they believe in body, mind as one, spirit, body, mind, and spirit as one, and they want to work at the level of energy. And um, so that's a whole different, you know, a whole different thing. So those three paradigms became the dominant ways of looking at birth throughout Latin America, and then it spread to other parts of the world until people all over the world were using my, quote-unquote, my three paradigms. And um, one of the... The significances of that is the the, do, the holistic physicians I interviewed told me that that before that when they first read my first book, Birth is an American Rite of Passage, 
That book analyzes hospital procedures as rituals and explains how the rituals of electronic fetal monitoring and labor induction and episiotomies and all of that enact the core values and beliefs of the technocracy. Um, So that first book showed them that they needed to change, you know, that showed them, first of all, why these medical procedures that are not evidence-based were so hard to get rid of because it had become so entrenched in in um, in the technocratic paradigm, which reflected the core values of the overall culture. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to change the treatment of birth, you had to change the, the culture, in fact, which was a huge job for anybody to take on. <clears throat> it showed them that humanism was an achievable goal and that holism would probably always be confined to a small percentage of people who were into that sort of mind, spirit energy you know, equation. One of the major distinctions I had to be very careful to make, though, in Brazil and everywhere, is that there's a huge difference between what I call superficial humanism and deep humanism. In superficial humanism, you can print pretty wallpaper on the wall, (coughs) make, (coughs) excuse me, pretty beds and, (coughs) and quilts in the labor room and be really, really nice to people. All the while, you're throwing augmentation and induction at them, cutting episiotomies, doing unnecessary cesareans, and you can call that humanistic. That's superficially humanistic. It's better than not being humanistic at all, but it's still very superficial. Whereas deep humanism honors the deep physiology of birth and is all about what you need to do to facilitate normal physiologic birth, which is what the the proponents of the humanized movement in Latin America are, are striving for. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that our listeners are going to really understand the three different paradigms and then think about where they want to place themselves. So as I was preparing for this, I read as many articles as yours, of yours as I could, and there's one particular, the technocratic body, the American childbirth as cultural expression. You explained the idea of the one-two punch, and your explanation made a lot of sense to me. You used the idea of the salmon swimming upstream. Can you explain that concept and how it relates to how we see childbirth? approached in the U.S.? Yes. Um, That concept, the one-two punch, came to me from Peter Reynolds, who's the one that started using the word technocracy before I did. And um, he describes it as take take salmon swimming upstream to spawn. Um, Every year they swim downriver and they go out in the ocean and live their lives, and then instinct tells them to come back to this river and swim upstream to spawn, and the life cycle goes on. Well, say you need to you need some hydroelectric power, so you build a dam, and then the salmon can't get upstream, upstream to spawn anymore. So one of the solutions to that has been to build salmon spawning factories where you scoop the salmon out of the water before they get to the dam, have them spawn in artificial trays, and then put them back in the water and hope that instinct will remind them of where to go and what to do next. <coughs> Reynolds' major point about that is that So punch one is take a natural process and mess it up with technology. And punch two is fix it with more technology. And Reynolds' great insight was that punch two is the point. We actually think we've made natural processes better when we screw them up with technology and then fix them with more technology. So I think the analogy with birth is pretty obvious. We take a natural process like birth that is much better when left alone and supported by loving female companions and the, and the male partner, if there is one, uh, uh, where the woman can move around, eat and drink, be in a birth center or at home or in a mother-baby-friendly hospital, <clears throat> where she's supported to let the natural process of birth flow and unfold at its own rhythms. But we don't do that in American hospitals and increasingly in hospitals around the, room, the world. We start monitoring her from the second she walks in. She gets put on the electronic fetal monitor, which means she can't get out of bed, which 
number that's a very just from the start that's a very bad thing because the essence of a healthy labor is movement when you strap a woman to the monitor and make her stand bad she's not moving which means she's not using gravity and her muscles <clears throat> and upright positions to open widen the pelvis help the cervix dilate and help the baby descend <clears throat> and we go on from there to um, augmenting labor with Pitocin because we're in a hurry and we don't want the baby or the woman's complaining that the birth is taking too long and do something. I want this baby out faster or the doctor <clears throat> has an appointment and he wants to get the labor overwards. So we just stick some Pitocin in there. And then <clears throat> if the baby is coming, well, let's cut an episiotomy. Why wait 15, 20 minutes for the crowning when we can just cut and the baby will pop right out in two minutes. Of course, you spend longer than that sewing up the episiotomy, but whatever. The, the bottom line is punch two is the point. We actually think that we've made birth better and safer by damming up the river of birth and <clears throat> controlling it with the floodgates that are standard obstetrical procedures. That makes complete sense. So how do you see or do you see anything in the current U.S. models actually supporting birth? Well, I mean, we've had a huge birth activist movement in this country from the 60s on. Um, and I think the birth activist movement can take credit for the fact that, okay, so in 1970, the cesarean rate was 6%. Doctors had skills. They knew how to turn a breech baby in, in utero called an external version. They knew how to... Um, to get breech babies out healthily and safely with hand maneuvers. They knew how to release a shoulder dystocia. Those skills are not being taught anymore because any of those problems arrive, you got a breech baby, you do a cesarean. Um, those skills are not being transmitted. So um, when the, and the electronic fetal monitor is a huge part of that because it shows every contraction and every um, deceleration of the fetal heart rate. Well, it's perfectly normal during labors for the fetal heart rate to decelerate and then come up again and then go down again and then come up again. And evidence shows that practitioners auscultating or listening with a fetoscope or a Doppler every 20 minutes can get more accurate information on the course of the labor. But when you hook the woman up to the monitor, you're getting every deceleration and it starts to look scary and dangerous and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, and you rush her off for a cesarean she didn't need. <clears throat> okay, so, um, oh gosh, what was the question in the beginning? <laughs> are we seeing any current U.S. Uh, yes. medical models that are okay. supporting birth? So in 1970, before the monitor was around, the cesarean rate was 6%. Again, as I said, doctors had skills. But once the machine, it was invented by this doctor named Edward Hahn, H-O-N, and his purpose in inventing it was to keep labor normal. He thought if you had this machine that gave you all this information, you could see that birth was progressing normally most of the time, and then so you wouldn't intervene. That was his thought. But of course, it got used in exactly the opposite way, giving you an excuse to intervene. <clears throat> and so when the monitor was introduced in 1970, the cesarean rate again was 6%. 10 years later, when it was ubiquitous in American hospitals, the cesarean rate was 23%. So it went from 6 to 23% in that one decade, and that had a lot to do with the fetal monitor spreading, spreading everywhere. Now, what's really interesting is that from 1980, when the rate was 23%, to about 2009, the rate just kept fluctuating between 20 and 25%. It didn't go past that. And I think that was because birth activists were out there screaming and yelling, give us VBACs. Let us have vaginal birth after cesareans. Every percentage increase resulted in a huge outpouring of protests from the birth activist movement. And doctors held it to under 25% for all those years. Then suddenly in 2009, we get this dumb study that shows that VBAC is dangerous, which was not, you know, not a well done study. Um, but everybody immediately jumped to, oh, now we can't do VBACs anymore or we have to only do them in tertiary care centers where there's an anesthesiologist on call 24-7. And so suddenly the rate of, v, of uh, VBACs dropped and the rate of cesareans went up. And the other thing that happened around 2009 or around there was that ACOG came out with a statement, ACOG being the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, came out with a statement saying that scheduled cesareans were ethical. 
that it was okay for women to choose their time and date of birth by a scheduled cesarean, which resulted in a lot of women doing that for various reasons. Say you're Chinese and you want your baby to be born on a fortuitous day, so you scheduled the birth for that day. Or say you're a corporate working woman and you've got conference calls between London and Japan, and so you schedule your cesarean when you're, you know, when you've got a minute. Not a whole lot of women took that up, but it was enough to result in the cesarean rate continuing to climb up until it hit 32%. Then another very interesting thing happened. It has stayed at 32% since like 2011, you know? And again, I attribute that to the birth movement, screaming and yelling. And also, I think that American doctors are starting to pay more and more attention to the actual scientific evidence. What they were seeing when they started scheduling cesareans and scheduling routine, scheduling labor inductions before 39 weeks, they were seeing NICUs full of premature babies. And neonatologists in charge of the NICU started yelling, what are you doing? Stop this. Here's a 32-weeker who was born because you scheduled the induction at what you thought was 38 weeks, but guess what, you were wrong. The baby was only 32 weeks, and so now we've got to build its lungs artificially, it could die, this is ridiculous. So ACOG came out with a new policy, no scheduled inductions or the cesareans before 39 weeks. It should have been 42 weeks, but at least it was 39 weeks. And guess what, the NICU started to empty out because premature babies weren't being born at such a rapid rate. So American doctors are starting to, to bridge what we used to call the evidence practice gap, you know. Now we have the evidence discourse practice gap, as a student of mine once pointed out. <clears throat> the evidence practice gap was here's the evidence and here's practice and they don't have anything to do with each other. Doctors just keep doing what they've always done and they pay no attention to the evidence. But the evidence discourse practice gap means that they know the evidence, they talk about the evidence, and most of the time they don't act on the evidence. <clears throat> but at least they know it and they talk about it, and that has started to have an effect. American doctors are humanizing birth. They've, you know, a long time ago they let dads into the labor rooms, they started letting family members in. Doulas have made huge inroads into American births and are, are available for a lot of women to provide that critical labor support. The doula studies are showing more and more clearly that the presence of the doula makes a more positive effect on the outcome of the labor than even the presence of the husband or mm -hmm. her, the girl's mother, the lady's mother or whoever. <clears throat> so there are these definite humanistic trends in American birth especially. The sad thing is that we exported our bad technocratic model to the rest of the world and now we're humanizing and they're stuck with our horrible model of giving Pitocin without epidurals, putting women through all kinds of pain, doing Pristellar maneuvers, which is pushing down on the fundus. It's a very brutal, there is obstetric violence in the last four years has become this major topic of conversation in the birth movement all over the world. Some countries have even passed laws against obstetric violence that nobody's obeying, but at least the laws are there <clears throat> because the technocratic model <clears throat> when applied to birth in its unadulterated form is violent. And it does violence to women in overt and subtle ways. The overt ways are, you stupid woman, what's the matter with you? Now you're screaming and what, you know, you do, you bet you weren't screaming when you were enjoying yourself getting pregnant, you know, or slapping women. I'm talking about third world, developing world <laughs> clinics and countries, slapping women, treating them, treating them very badly, yelling at them, insulting them. That's overt obstetric violence. And then there's the very subtle obstetric violence that we get in the United States, which is the nurse saying to the woman who clearly said she didn't want an epidural, oh, honey, you don't have to suffer like this. We could give you an epidural and it'll be all over right away. And then you won't be any pain. That's a subtle form of obstetric violence that goes against what the woman already said she wanted. But when you're in a vulnerable state and you are suffering and somebody says, here, have a piece of candy that'll make you feel better, it's really hard not to take that piece of candy, even if later you know you're going to regret it because that wasn't how you wanted to give birth, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've got a social scientist these days studying obstetric violence all over the world from the very subtle to the very overt. Mm -hmm. Well, how, when a woman is thinking about her birth, what do you think she needs to consider to help her make an educated choice about the care she needs as well as where she should birth? 
I think she needs to look deep inside herself and ask herself who she is, what kind of person she is, what are her core beliefs and values. That article of mine that you mentioned, The Technocratic mm -hmm. Body, American Childbirth is Cultural Expression. In that article, for that article, I interviewed about 40 women, um, most of whom were high-powered high, high corporate CEOs and lawyers and um, you know, very women in positions of power with lots of employees under them. And those women tended to be very technocratic in their own approach to their own bodies. When I said to them, what is your body? They would say, my body is a tool. It's a vehicle for me to get around in the world. It's a means of, of, of getting my work done. Um, one woman described her body, her relationship to her body as abusive. I'm so determined to get ahead in the corporate world that I abuse my body by eating junk food and not exercising and just sitting at the computer all day long. Whereas the other women I interviewed, there were about 32 who were like that in the study, and then the other group were home birthers, and they would say, I am my body. My body is me. Uh, my body is the, ex is the expression of my soul. My body is a sacred temple. And for the corporate type women, you can see how scheduling a cesarean or having an epidural would be, would be logical for them. They don't value their bodies. One woman said, I don't like to drop down into biology. I don't want to be a biological woman. I want to be an intellectual and an emotional woman, but not a biological woman. If my husband could have the baby instead, that would be just fine with me. That was an example of the corporate type, you know, the high-powered, successful businesswomen. Some of the home birthers were also quite successful, but they tended to run smaller businesses, some of them out of their homes with their kids running around like your kids are running around right now. <laughs> and um, and and they, they just had this completely different, you know, my body is me. So for them, gave, giving birth under their own power um, was something that they treasured, something that they valued. It was like, you know, no pain, no gain. For them, pain was part of the whole experience. One, one woman said, my body's not a pie. You can't cut out the pain and leave the rest of the pie intact. If you take away the pain, you take away the magic and the mystery and the grandeur of the whole experience. You take away my ability to surrender to completely to labor and birth and become powerful in that surrender, to let nature carry me, to trust my body, you know? Mm -hmm. So women today who are trying to decide what kind of birth they want, maybe read that article and ask yourself, where do you fall on that spectrum between those two kinds of women? You know, if you want your scheduled cesarean and the thought of going into labor horrifies you, then schedule your cesarean, but please don't do it before 40 weeks because you're really running the risk of a premature baby. If you want a natural childbirth, if you truly want a natural childbirth, please don't go to the hospital thinking you're going to be one of the few exceptions that actually has a natural childbirth in the hospital. Did you know that in the U.S., about 5% of hospital births are actually what you could truly call natural in terms of no interventions? So many women do all this reading and all this preparation and they bring their doulas and they think they're going to have this natural childbirth in the hospital. And they end up with all kinds of interventions, epidural, cesareans, all kinds of stuff that they weren't planning on because they're in the hospital, not because they actually needed it. So if you want a totally natural birth, then do not go to the hospital. Give birth in a birth center or a home with practitioners who have the same ideology as you who share your ideology, because it has long been shown and proven by Alan Hodnett and other researchers that it's the paradigm of the practitioner that counts the most. What well, the, the, the kind of birth your practitioner wants you to have is the kind of birth you're most likely to have. Well, that so leads you, me to a question about how would someone find a care provider who has that holistic and humanistic approach, and what would be some signs that maybe they're uh, portraying that's their philosophy, but maybe in reality that's not quite how they support physiological birth. Well, okay, suppose you want a truly natural physiologic birth, but you'd like to have it with an obstetrician because that makes you feel safer. That pretty much means you're going to have to go to the hospital unless you find an obstetrician who does home births. There are a few around. How would you find, or suppose you just want to have the most natural childbirth you can, but you really want to be in the hospital because it makes you feel safer, but you really want that natural childbirth. 
So you ask, there's a birth community in every city, and they all know each other. You find the doulas, you find the midwives, and you ask them, who are the most holistic or who are the most humanistic obstetricians? If you were giving birth with a doctor, which doctor in the city would you choose? And that's how you find the humanistic and holistic OBs. If you want a home birth or a birth center birth, just go to the, it depends on what state you're in. If you're in a state where home birth midwives are legal, just go to the internet or go to the yellow pages and you'll find midwives and their practices listed. And you, you call them up and you interview a few midwives and see which ones fit best with your personality. You know, if you, if you don't feel quite safe at home, but you really don't want the hospital either, then go tour the birth centers in your area. There's likely to be a few and talk to the midwives at the birth centers and see if that space makes you feel safe. You know, a lot of women, not a lot, but some women start out giving birth at home because they think that's what they want, but in fact, they're terrified. So they end up getting transferred to the hospital and the second they get there, the birth proceeds really well because that's where they needed to be in the first place because it makes them feel safe. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, where do I feel safe? Do I feel safe in the hospital where all the technologies, including cesarean, are available? Or I do, do I feel terrified by the hospital where all those technologies are likely to be thrown at me if I don't, even if I don't want them? You know, like I, when I gave birth to my second child, I was absolutely terrified of going back to the hospital because I'd had that horrible, unnecessary cesarean. And I knew that I didn't want that again for myself. So I moved mountains to prepare myself for the home birth that I knew in my soul that I wanted and I was absolutely committed to. But there was a time during labor when the pain was so intense that I thought, I'm never again going to judge a woman who chooses an epidural. I totally get why in this age of where pain relief is so easily available, you have to choose the pain. You have to want that sense of achievement that pushing through the pain gives you in order to make it worth it for you. If you don't want that, if you don't, like it's, it's like if you're running a marathon, you know, do you just want to get to the end? And if you do, well, then you can take a taxi to the finish line, <laughs> you know, and that, that's an epiduralized birth. You take a taxi to the finish line. But if you, if you want to run that marathon yourself, the marathon of birth, and if you want to climb that mountain and enjoy the view because you climb the mountain more, or you can see the same view if a helicopter drops you off, you know, in birth. Do you want that sense of an intense achievement that you get from doing it on your own? Or would you rather the technologies help you with it? And at least what you want is just the healthy baby. You don't care about the experience so much. Mm -hmm. So women have to women have to know themselves and then choose practitioners that fit with what they themselves truly desire. So what if a woman has set herself up, she has the doula, she put a lot of time and effort into finding her care provider, and she's read, she's educated, she's informed herself, but she finds she's in this in the scenario where she's starting to get bombarded by technology, rules, and restrictions. How can she adjust to that? In the hospital? Mm-hmm. Well, the most radical way is to walk out. <laughs> <laughs> Hospitals are not happy when you do that, but I have known some women to just strip off everything and say, you know, this is really not the kind of birth I wanted. I'm, I'm going home with my midwife. I'm going to call my midwife and we're going to have a home birth. That's a very radical thing to do. Hardly anybody ever does it, especially yeah. if you're in active labor. Especially if they're in labor, I can't yeah. say. <laughs> so, and the other thing is that you don't want to turn birth into a battleground, but right. if you really, if you really want a natural birth and you're in the hospital and people are trying to bombard you with technologies, then you or the doula or your husband has to fight them off and hold somebody has to hold a holistic space for you. Usually nurse midwives in hospitals are the best ones at doing that. If you really want a hospital birth, but you want it to be normal, your very best bet is to have a nurse midwife attend you who will hold the most holistic space she can for you, listen to you, be with you, and try to give you the kind of birth you want within the confines of the technocratic institution as best she can. Mm -hmm. But if you truly want a normal, natural birth, don't go to the hospital in the first place. You know, that's the best advice I can give. And as you say, if you do anyway, and maybe that's your only option, there really isn't any other option, then go to the hospital with a doula, with companions, and with the best nurse midwife that you can find in the city who knows you 
from one hour long prenatal care visits and we'll work with you to help you achieve the birth you want in the hospital. Well, a moment ago, you talked about holding the space. Can you talk a little bit about holding the space and how the energy around the birthing mom and environment can affect the mother's ability to labor well? Okay, here's two stories. Um, I've done years, decades of research on American midwives. And here's two stories. I studied midwifery education. And here are two stories from nurse midwifery education. So here's one midwife. She's become, she's a student nurse midwife. She used to be uh, a home birth midwife, but she decided she wanted to become a nurse midwife so she could attend more women because most women are in the hospitals. So she had to learn the hospital protocols and how to use all the machines. And she said that was the hardest thing was having to deal with the fetal monitors, which put you at a distance from your client. And so she was sent in to attend this birth. And she said the mother was just kind of wild and <coughs> was tossing and turning and screaming and and, um, you know, was demanding more pain relief and, and was saying, nobody's listening to me. And um, so the, the midwife, the student midwife called in uh, an obstetrical residence who gave her Pitocin to speed up her labor. And she ended up with a cesarean that she probably didn't really need. <clears throat> and when I asked her, I said, what if you'd been at home for that birth, given that you had already attended a lot of home births? And she said, well, if I'd been at home, everything would have been different. First of all, she and I would have already had a relationship and her family wouldn't be standing between me and keeping me from getting to her and holding her and loving her as they did in the hospital. Second of all, she wouldn't have been strapped up to the monitor. She would have been up and around and eating and drinking and moving. Everything would have been different. And I said, so why didn't you do that in the hospital? And she said, because there was no one to hold that space for me in the hospital. I was only a student and I didn't have the authority to create that space for myself. Now contrast that with another student nurse midwife story who she had also been a home birth midwife. She's in the hospital learning. She has the same kind of issue. She's thrown into this birth <clears throat> where things are going badly and it you know, looks like a cesarean might be inevitable. And her nurse midwifery teacher, preceptor, turned to her and said, what would you do if you were at home this, with this woman right now? And she said, well, I, she wouldn't be on the monitor and she wouldn't be strapped up and she'd be moving. And she says she's hungry, so I'd be giving her food. And, and the preceptor said, well, do that now. Do this birth as if you were at home. I'll hold the space for you because I have the authority to lock the door. So the student then free within that space, the preceptor was holding got all the machines off her, got her some food, brought in her husband, you know, and she had a fabulous natural childbirth in the hospital. That's what I mean by holding the space. Mm -hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And do you feel like from doing that, the energy around the mom is feeling more protected and she then can let her body just do what it has to do? Yes. Um, and that's what Ida, Gas Ida Mae Gaskin is all about when she talks about birth energy. Mm -hmm. um, if there's, say, it, say it's a home birth at the farm and, and, and it's not going well, Ida Mae is likely to look around the room and point to the mother-in-law and say, are you feeling afraid? So there, I'm detecting fear in the room. And the mother-in-law says, actually, yes, I'm terrified. And Ina Mae says, I think it would be better if you went outside for a while because your energy, and she says it nicely, of course, but we need positive energy in this room. So you mm -hmm. find the person who's got the negative energy and you send them out. I'll tell you a very funny story about that. Um, Ina Mae said there was this one birth on the farm that was progressing beautifully. Everything was fine. The mother's now sitting on her husband's lap pushing and the pushing is going nowhere. And Anime is like, something's blocking the energy. And she looked around the room and she said, is anyone holding anything back? Now, remember, she's sitting on her husband's lap pushing. And mm -hmm. her, husband, her husband said, I've been needing to pee desperately for the last <laughs> half hour. 
So the mother gets up, the husband goes to pee, he comes back, she sits back on his lap, and the baby's born in 10 minutes. <laughs> That's really funny. Right? If you, That's really if you, funny. If you intervene at the level of energy, you do not have to intervene at the level of technology. <laughs> well, as an anthropologist, where are you seeing the best birth results and what can we learn or take away from those cultures? Well, the two best um, countries for giving birth these days um, would be New Zealand and the Netherlands. The Netherlands has been a great birth model for a long time, although it's slipping their cesarean rate has gone up to 16%, which isn't anything compared to the cesarean rates in many other countries, but it used to be 12%. And their home birth rate used to be 30%. It's now only 16%. Um, but still, Dutch midwives are highly skilled. They're autonomously trained. Um, the Netherlands is still a very good model. Then there's New Zealand, where midwives are now present at 100% of births. It was an amazing midwifery renaissance in New Zealand. Um, in the 80s, um, a group of um, independent home birth midwives started to get together and try to create midwifery as an independent profession in New Zealand. It did not exist at the time. And it took them 10 years to get their law. And one of the reasons they, they made it and they got their law was they created this concept of LMC, the lead maternity carer. So in New Zealand, that is the person, everybody agreed, the obstetricians agreed, the nurses agreed, the midwives agreed, the government agreed that women are entitled to continuity of care. So they based their whole system on the fact that the woman should be able to have one person that will see her throughout her pregnancy that will guarantee to be there at her birth. So <clears throat> the law was that that person could be a general practitioner it could be a midwife or it could be um, an obstetrician. Well, the obstetricians accepted and went along with this idea of the lead maternity carer or LMC because they thought it would be them. They thought that any intelligent woman in New Zealand was bound to choose the highly educated obstetrician over the lowly midwife. But as time passed, the rate of women choosing midwives as their primary caregivers kept going up and up and up. Until today, it's 92% of New Zealand women choose midwives to be their primary caregivers, their LMC, and to be there for their births. Um, obstetricians' numbers have then gone way down, and they are now pretty much confined to dealing with true cases of pathology. The proper ratio in any country is, is midwives 80%, obstetricians 20%, because that's the percentage of birth that actually might need obstetrical expertise in pathology. And New Zealand has surpassed that ratio. And even if you do have a scheduled cesarean in New Zealand, you're still entitled to having a midwife by your side. So it's a fantastic model. Then you can look at um, the Nordic countries, Norway, Denmark, they have cesarean rates of 19% or so and, and very good, um, very viable midwifery professions. But that's about it. There are not too many nationwide good birth models around the world. There are hundreds of wonderful, small, good models, good practices, which I talked about in my co-edited book, Birth Models That Work. And now Betty Ann Davis and I are doing a sequel called Birth Models That Work, Volume 2, <clears throat> um, Speaking Truth to Power, Birth Models on the Human Rights Frontier. And we have some amazing models, and they're established by people in war zones and disaster zones under terrible circumstances that are still managing to produce amazing birth outcomes. All of what, what all the models in both books have in common is that they all uh, operate under what we call a midwifery model of care, which is a combination of humanistic and holistic care. Do you by any chance, and I know I'm just kind of throwing this uh, question at you, do you know this, the percentages of midwives in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, uh, midwives attend about 12% of all American births. Um, certified nurse midwives attend about 10% of um, American births, mostly in hospitals, but a small percentage of them do attend births at home. And then CPMs, certified professional midwives, attend about 1.36%, I'm sorry, 1.36% of, of American births. And the rest are, you know, lay midwives who are out of the system. 
Um, but in general, altogether, all midwives attend a, just a little bit less than 12% of American births, which is ridiculous and absurd. And again, we need to flip those numbers. Midwives should be attending 80% of American births and OB should be confined to the 20% that really need their expertise. I have a holistic obstetrician friend in Brazil who says the obstetrician should be the hero of the hospital. He should be the one who swoops in to rescue the damsel when she's truly in distress, not the one to monitor the normal pregnancy and birth because he's only going to mess with it because he has no training in normal pregnancy and birth, so he doesn't know how to support normal physiological physiology of pregnancy. Yeah, I think for our culture to flip those numbers, it's going to take um, a massive shift of paradigm of, of how what we yeah. feel safe with. Of epic, <laughs> of epic proportions, yes. Yeah. But, but you, you know, the tipping point um, is often 20%. If American midwives as a whole could get up to attending 20% of American births, um, they would be a pretty unstoppable force. Um, and now they're at 12. For a long time, they were at less than 8 all right, you know. so, we're, so we're climbing. <laughs> so we're climbing. Back in the 1970s, they all midwives attended, all, all midwives, including nurse midwives, attended 1% of American births. You know, so, I mean, there's been steady progress, but we're still only at 12%. So can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming book? Um, well, I'm very excited that, you know, when you get to be older and you've published a whole bunch of stuff, people start calling you a senior scholar, which... <laughs> makes me feel old but cool, I guess, at the same time. And so um, I noticed uh, through ResearchGate that people are still reading a lot of the articles that I've been publishing since the late 1980s. And so I decided to do <clears throat> an anthology of my most read, most popular articles. Um, and I've, I have revised and updated all of them, and that's been a real journey and a lot of fun getting updated with that's why I can tell you the nurse midwifery statistics and the midwifery <laughs> statistics in general because I'm up on everything because I just finished doing that book um so it consists again of my most popular articles over time all of which I've revised and updated and added a lot to and um, it's called ways of knowing about birth mothers midwives medicine and birth activism and so there's a whole section on birth activism and the ironies and paradoxes of being a birth activist because in some ways, birth activists are actually asking women to suffer. You know, please don't have your epidural till you get to six centimeters. Because if you wait till six centimeters, the epidural won't slow the progress of labor. But if you have it at two centimeters, you're likely to end up with cesarean because epidurals slow progress of labor. We know this to be true. We're asking women to wait till six centimeters. That means asking them to go through the pain of labor till six centimeters. You know, and that's kind of inherently paradoxical. A lot of women are like not interested in that message. They're like, I don't want to hear about pain. Give me that epidural at one centimeter. I don't care if I end up with a cesarean. So, and then, so that's one of my books. And then the other one um, that I'm working on right now is called um, Birth in Seven Cultures. Back in 1993, I revised and updated Birth in Four Cultures for Bridget Jordan, who's my mentor in this field. Um, she passed away recently, and I'm, uh, that book is still being used for teaching, and she always told me I should do my own book to replace it. So I'm doing a book, I'm editing a book called Birth in Seven Cultures, which was, will be designed for undergraduate teaching in the social sciences, but will also be of, of great interest to lay people, I hope. <laughs> I think so. I look forward to getting my hands on them. So thank Thanks. you. Is there any last minute something you want to add to our list that our listeners should chew on some thoughts final thoughts i guess just um just that thing i said before when you're when you're planning the kind of birth you're setting yourself up to have know yourself look deep down inside what is it that really matters to me do i really want that amazing feeling that, <clears throat> that feeling that i can do anything that women have when they push their babies out or am i too afraid of the pain and that feeling is as important to me as not being in pain, you know. And if I don't want to be in pain, am I willing to risk ending up with a cesarean because I had an epidural at one centimeter? Or can I use a doula and a jacuzzi and my husband or my partner to help me make it through to six centimeters when it's safe to have the epidural because then it won't mess up my labor anymore, you know. 
Um, if you read my book, Ways of Knowing, after it comes out, you'll see those women on different sides of the spectrum and how they thought about their bodies. And you could use that chapter to sort of see where you feel, you know, are, are you, do you feel like you are your body? And do you want to be an earth mother and a goddess? If so, then go for that home birth, you know, go for that birth center birth. But if, if that's not your primary objective, if all you want is a healthy baby and the experience of doing it yourself isn't important to you, then have a hospital birth with a, a humanistic, at least, practitioner who will treat you with respect and dignity. Well, I think that's what we want, though, is respect and dignity. I think that's one thing that's, I think everyone can That's what can everybody... Everyone can agree on that, yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sharing so much of your wisdom and so much of your time. And we will make sure that we link to your articles and all of your in, in your website and your books. So okay, that's a, great. <laughs> all right, have a great Go evening. Ahead. Okay, right. thank you. I enjoyed right. it. Me too. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.